Welcome to Farmside Today, our regular podcast about what's happening in pharmaceutical science, hosted by Professor Gina Martini, Chief Scientist of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Visit www.orpharms.com forward slash podcasts for more Farmside Today and other podcasts. You can help us support the work of pharmacists by joining. Membership is just 60p a day. And now over to you, Gino. My name is Gino Martini. I'm the Chief Scientist for the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. And today we have another Farmside podcast. I'm absolutely delighted that today we've invited back Dr. Clive Dix of the Vaccines Task Force to give an update on the, the great work that Bayes is doing and the work of the Vaccines Task Force. Clive, welcome. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you, Gino, and thank, thank you for inviting me back. I have to say the last podcast was very well received. Our members found it extremely informative. Uh, Clive, I think we'll just go straight into it. Can you just remind our members who you are and your background to date? I'm currently the chair of the Vaccine Task Force. My career spans many, many years, as I said before, far too many to to catalogue. I started off as a pharmacologist, degree, PhD in pharmacology, and since then moving through postdocs, I went into industry and have had a very varied career, both in large pharmaceutical companies where I headed up research at Glaxo Welcome, to small startups, which I helped found. And um, more recently, I'm, I'm the CEO of a, a small pharmaceutical company called C4X Discovery that's developing drugs for a multitude of conditions. Last time we spoke, you were the deputy chairman of the Bastings Task Force. Since then, now, I believe you're the interim chair of the Vaccines Task Force. Can you provide a bit more about your role and also what's the role of the task force now? Okay, so when I joined the task force right in the early days with Kate Bingham, the role of the task force then was threefold. It was, first of all, to acquire the right vaccines for the UK to make sure that we could vaccinate our citizens. And that was with a blank sheet of paper because there weren't any that had been developed at that point just over a year ago. It's amazing, really. To secondly ensure then we also helped the international community to ensure that vaccines were accessed globally for the world. And our third objective was before we shut up shop and um, said goodbye to the vaccine task force, we made sure that it was a real legacy. So in the future, the UK would be able to respond more rapidly to an infectious disease threat that could be either endemic or pandemic. So that was that was the role that we were given to start with. Now, when I took over when Kate left, we thought the job was done. We'd found all the vaccines and we would get them all approved. And those that were approved, we would acquire enough for the UK. And then we'd start looking at what we did to help the rest of the world if there's any left over. And things changed quite, not dramatically, but changed in the sense of the risk that we're now facing is still there. And it's only that it's there because there are some variants emerging and that's made us think again. So we need to make sure that we can cover those variants. We're pretty confident the current vaccines will do a pretty good job on them, but we can't be complacent. So my job now is to look at perhaps building a new portfolio of vaccines that will be resistant to the variant strains that might come through. So that, that's the role now. It's to finish off the job getting the current vaccines out there and then start looking at the right strategies to make sure that any changes we need to make them to get variant cover that we do that. So basically the vaccines task force is here to stay for the foreseeable future until the threat is under control. Yeah, we're not going to walk away in the middle of a fire, are we? So we're just we're keeping at it, yeah. So you just mentioned a bit about the variants and clearly over the weekend there was some data that's not been peer-reviewed 
suggesting maybe the Oxford AZ vaccine may provide minimum protection against the South African variant. Have you got any views on that, Clive? Yeah, well, more than views. I think there's a good emerging data about what's happening with the variants. In all variants, the vaccines work, but they might just be slightly less effective depending on how you measure effectiveness. What we've seen today, if we look at the Novavax vaccine that was trialled in South Africa with the South African variant as part of the study, because it happened to be endemic there at the time, and with the J&J vaccine that was trialled there, because the virus was there, we saw the data from that. In both cases, they're effective. They're slightly less effective than they are against the wild-type variants, but they're effective. And, and the most important thing is you might get a sort of a slightly decreased efficacy readout, 60-odd percent rather than 80 percent, for instance. But what you don't see is you don't see anybody progressing to severe disease or dying. So they are actually incredibly effective still. And, and a lot of the data that's been headlined, which is percentage efficacies, is really just how many people just catch the disease at all. It's not how many people go on to get severe disease. So that's the really important thing that the vaccine's They do stop people going on to severe disease, as far as we can tell from all the data that's been generated. And the Oxford vaccine is probably the same. They just happen to have done a study looking at early disease in a small number of people in South Africa. And it doesn't seem that effective stopping people getting that disease, but they haven't gone on to see if they get severe disease or die. And the likelihood is they probably won't. So it's a sort of piece of interim data that doesn't concern us. I think that's the sort of thing you're going to see quite surprised at the reaction to it but it's actually as far as we're concerned we're still very confident that these vaccines will do their job and i think it's fair to say it was a very small study and again data's not been peer-reviewed so i i agree with you the, the reaction seems to have been surprising but i think it's also you know steady as you go i think we've got plenty of confidence that these vaccines are going to be working to do the main thing i mean if we compare it to flu The flu vaccines don't stop everybody getting a little bit of disease, but they do pretty much kill off the the chance of people getting very, very ill and dying. So that's that's the whole point of these vaccination programmes. I think many of our members will be reassured and we'll make sure we communicate those messages of assurance to the general public. So how well do you think the pharmacy workforce has been used to date? Have you been pleased with the results? I have to say the, the vaccine task force hasn't been involved very much with the deployment. But we've seen a fantastic call to arms. And I think that not just the pharmacy network, but also the nurses and and retired doctors, everyone's really pulled together. And I think it's been a fantastic team effort to get this deployment working at the rate it's working at. And, you know, there was a lot of early criticism of maybe they wouldn't be able to do it. But I think everybody stepped up to the plate and done a brilliant job. Yeah, I would agree. We're on Monday today, the 8th of February. I would think by the end of the week, we'd probably hit that target of 15 million. And I think everyone's working really well. Look to the future, Clive. You hinted about your role as Vaccines Task Force, looking at obviously new vaccines coming on stream to combat the variants. And clearly pharmacists, as you know, have played an active role in, in flu campaigns. Do you see something very similar happening over the next three to five years that, you know, we'll be having almost like uh, COVID-19 vaccination programmes? Is that the kind of vision you're, you guys are working to? Well, there's two things. First of all, we don't yet know the duration of action of any of these vaccines because we haven't deployed them for long enough to measure that but all that work's going on and you know both public health england and the department of health and social care are doing multiple studies on the immune response in vaccinated individuals so we'll we'll find out how long they last but you know we've got to use flu as our 
as our standard because it's another respiratory virus. The immune response doesn't seem to last forever with, with these viruses. And we don't know whether it will or not, but we're not sitting back in our seats and thinking, yeah, it'll be fine. We're actually planning that we will have to have at least one vaccine every year to boost the immune system. I would tend to agree with that as well. So during the pandemic, I think there's been comments that perhaps we need to have a stronger manufacturing base and clinical development capacity. Do you tend to agree with that? Well, when we started, I absolutely agree with it. We had one company in the UK that manufactured vaccines, and that was the CSL Sequiris site in Speak. And that was literally our manufacturing base for vaccines. But, you know, we'll walk away, I think, Hopefully, the country will recognise how much we've done. So we will obviously now have the Oxford vaccine capability, which is mainly Oxford Biomedica, but it will move into the the Vaccine Innovation Centre. That's one possibility. We've just spent a lot of money on the the site in Scotland, the Livingston site where Valneva are, and that will have a 200 million dose capability for a live inactivated viral vaccine. As you know, we've just announced a collaboration with an RNA vaccine company, CureVac, and we're going to be transferring that technology to the UK and and setting up manufacturing of that for the future. And there are some other discussions ongoing to see if we can increase capacity elsewhere too. So we will have a lot better capacity come the end of this pandemic, and it'll be there for the future both for inward investment and the economy of the country, as well as for the safety of our citizens. What's in the pipelines for vaccines? Is there anything out there that's quite interesting, quite exciting that we, we should know about? We studied a lot of early stage vaccines that worked via a simpler approach, so a simpler uh, administrative approach, not a simpler approach. The science is very complex, but we saw some potentially orally bioavailable vaccines in enteric coated tablets. We saw some the work around patch technologies about dry formulations that were injected, uh, intranasal vaccines, all of which look quite interesting. But they're early still, and probably you and I both know, Gino, that getting something from that stage as a, a new device or a new system takes a lot to get it through development and to become a standard, a standard product. So, you know, they're exciting, interesting, and I hope that we'll put something in place that will help encourage people with those systems to work with us in the UK using the incredible clinical network we've now got and using you know the vaccine manufacturing innovation center to see if we can get some of those into the clinic and see if they really can become new products that will help with not just with I mean deployment in the UK we're very sophisticated we can probably deploy anything you guys can turn your hand to whatever it looks like but in the real pandemic situation you would like to think we've got something that was viable across the world and most of these vaccines are very difficult to deploy in in some of the countries. I think the fact that you are looking towards the future and trying to continuously improve I think is uh, is is of credit to to the vaccines task force. This ongoing debate I think well is it ongoing debate now about the 12-week interval between vaccines I think the latest data, uh, certainly from Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, would seem to confirm that the government got it right. Would you tend to agree, Clive? Oh, I do. We've become a little bit fixated by having to have the absolute scientific data and be absolutely scientifically scrupulous on everything. But once we know that we've got a vaccine that is safe, that's the important thing, that is safe and it has shown efficacy. We can look at the huge database of vaccines that have been rolled out and look at the the time intervals. And what we see in almost all cases is if 
if you leave it slightly longer, you get a better response. And the only reason the trials don't leave it longer is it takes longer to do the trial and we're in a hurry this time around. Let's do it as short as possible to get a response. But Oxford, in an interesting way, they had already thought about that and done some parts of that study with a longer interval. And the data shows that you get a better response. So I'm not so concerned that we've done it with vaccines without the data, because I think the answer will be when you do get the data, it's the same. And sometimes you have to use scientific judgment and clinical nous rather than just always say, I'm not doing anything until I know for certain. And as long as you're not doing anything that puts the safety of the patients at risk, then you've got to do these things at times like this. I was often asked that question because, as you know, I've been volunteering as a vaccinator. You know, why is it 12 weeks? It shouldn't have been six weeks or three weeks. And it was great when that data came out because you could say, have faith in, in what the task force is doing, what the government's recommending. You know, it's really good conversations in, in, in reassuring patients that they are getting the full coverage. First question you ever get asked, by the way, is, is this the Oxford one or the uh, Pfizer one? And it was really interesting that people are reading this story about vaccines and, you know, they understand the cold chain supply in, in a dialogue that you have with them. So patients are very well informed and they are curious, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think not only are they curious, they should be, but I think we've elevated science now in the UK, particularly vaccinology, to a much higher level and the public are informed. And the great thing is they're asking good questions now that they are informed which you know they didn't they didn't know what the right questions to ask before but they know them now and it's great maybe it'll stimulate some of these youngsters to go into science and we'll have more scientists in the future and i think that's exactly what's going to happen i hear anecdotally there's been a lot of interest in medical courses science courses at universities so i think it's looking really really good from a science perspective yeah. Next question, I think, is, is there enough vaccine to ensure people have the same vaccine for both doses? And I know what the vaccine task force have purchased because it's been very transparent. They're all been on the government website for, for many, many months now. But can you just give our members an update on the, the numbers of vaccine doses available? And also, I suppose, that latest study that's been announced for trying to mix different brands, I suppose. All the listeners will know that we've advanced purchased a lot of vaccine. But we haven't got all that vaccine. So only the ones that are approved, which is Pfizer, AZ and Moderna, have we got access to. And each of those companies are working flat out to supply us with vaccine at the rate that they said they could. And we're getting it coming in at that rate. So we're confident the numbers we're getting will deal with the current deployment programmes. And as long as, the, as long as the government doesn't get super excited and give us targets that are well in advance of what we've got now then we'll have plenty of vaccine to deploy and so the numbers are sort of irrelevant and you know we're never going to have the 350 odd or 60 odd million doses it's sort of just in time manufacturing that every batch is tested and released i guess and it gets into our hands and we get it into the hands of people like your members and that study, is that obviously like a fail-safe or is that something that... Needs- There's two reasons to do it. One is it does give flexibility if you need it. Um, we probably won't now because of the time it reads out, we'll probably be close to having done most of it. What it does also do, though, is there's quite a lot of evidence that priming with one platform and, and using a different platform for the boost gives you a better immune response. No one really understands why. So we want to just see if that is the case and it'll help us think about boosting strategies for the future too. 
Thank you, Clive. Thank you for your for your candour in that reply. One thing I want me to ask you has been reports again today about members of the BAME community and the uptake being low that it should be. Any ideas what could be done about this? Is this maybe a role a pharmacy could play? I, I just I'm I'm not a sort of healthcare social specialist, I guess, but so I don't understand why the, the community is um, so resistant. I've sat in on some amazing uh, Zoom networks. There's one there's an Asian network that I sat in on on a Saturday, Sunday night, where there was over 9,000 participants on the call with some experts from the, the NHS, doctors and nurses and vaccine experts who were answering their questions. And those sort of activities are really important. Anything like that, that where, where the community can come together and feel that it's in a safe place and being spoken to by people they trust is really important to get there. And, and I think, as I said at the last time we spoke, the one group of people that people really do respect and trust are people like pharmacists. They know they can go into their pharmacist and ask a question and they'll get an answer and it'll be a professional answer it'll be qualified and it'll be good so i think if there's anything that the pharmacy community can do is is talk to its customers whenever they can and give them assurance yeah i, I think our accessibility allows us to be a conduit and yeah um, we are respected people do trust us and i think you can instill confidence in the vaccination program and i have a big impact and i think in the last couple of weeks we've seen more community pharmacies come on stream and also of course our our colleagues in hospital pharmacy have also been very supportive and played an active role in vaccination. So fingers crossed the message will get out there. And I suppose, Clive, I think that comes up to, I suppose, my last question. It's a question I hear all the time. And how many people do we need to be vaccinated before we stop social distancing? And when can people hug their grandchildren again? Yeah, well, it's it's incredibly emotive. And I've sat in this chair now since last April, maybe. Uh, same room, same house, same village met very few people and it didn't bother me because I was working really hard but it's starting to get to me now and so what it's like for other people that have really had to deal with it and maybe they can't work and keep their mind off it maybe they've had to just stay at home and school their kids it must I just don't understand how how they go through it so it is an emotive question because people want to get out the answer is is difficult I think when we start getting more data on transmission, we got a little bit from the Oxford study saying that it looks like it does stop transmission, the Oxford vaccine in, in certain cohorts. Once we get more data on transmission and we know that we are really reducing the transmission rate at the same time, the number of cases that go in into hospital has gone down. I think we'll start to look at the timing of taking all the lockdown measures off, but whether it'll take social distancing off in the near future, who knows? But It'll be data-driven, Gino, and it'll be done as soon as it's felt safe. And the last thing, though, we should do is do it too soon and get back to where we were before. That's the issue that everybody faces. Let's, Even if it takes one last push, let's push. Let's try and be patient, even though none of us want to be. I'll let you into a little secret. It's getting to me as well. So you're not alone. And I do take great satisfaction in helping to vaccinate people as a volunteer because I'm channeling that frustration in saying, well, you know what? Let's do something about this. Let's help people so we can get back to, to hug people and, you know, hug parents and those all very important. Clive, thank you on behalf of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society for accepting to come back and, and do a second interview. Thank you and all the members of the task force and the people at Bayes for your incredible work that you've done in April. Look where we were, look where we are today. 
Well, well, thank you for that, Gina. And I would just say it was a very large team effort. The Vaccine Task Force is a cross-department, cross-function, cross-expertise group that have worked night and day to do this. And they've relied then on the baton being taken up by the deployment team and people like yourselves to get these vaccines into people. So it's an effort we're all part of together. So we should all be pleased that we've done it, but it's not down to any one group or one individual. Thank you, Clive. Thanks for joining us at Farmside today. We regularly add new chats with interesting and important figures at www.orfarms.com forward slash podcast. So check back again soon to keep up with the latest in pharmacy and pharmaceutical science. And remember, RPS membership costs just 60p a day. Find out more at www.orfarms.com forward slash RPS membership.